This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Laura from AJ Bell and I'm joined by Dan from Shares. Hello. So this week we're talking about what pubs, parks and hairdressers reopening means for markets the latest twists and turns in the property market, and we speak to the income fund manager who's managed to dodge pretty much all of the dividend cuts. So in this week in the markets, um, it's a bit of a continuation uh, what we've seen the last couple of weeks where I just think investors can't really decide if they're worried or not about potential second wave of coronavirus. So um, you've not really had a lot of progress for the big um, stock market indices. So gold miners have been in fashion. So the likes of Sentiment and Fresnillo have both seen about 12% weekly gains. Travel stocks are sort of falling back after their recent rally. So uh, looking at some of the overseas listed companies, Microsoft, uh, its shares have hit a new all-time high. Um, and Wirecard shares collapsed after it said uh, 1.9 billion euros was missing and that it may not actually exist. So the chief execs resigned has now been arrested. So that's been um, you know, a huge corporate scandal, uh, which is unraveling now. And um, there's an investment trust called European Opportunities seen its share price fall 10% in a week because unfortunately Wirecard was one of its big holdings. So we've seen that rebound in markets, but has everything gone up or have there been some losers? Well, since, I was saying since probably towards late March, generally stock markets have sort of tried to claw back its lost territory. But yeah, there are some stuff which hasn't rebounded. And I think here, um, investors are sort of sort of starting to sort of have a good look around and think, well, are these stocks sort of effectively staying cheap for a reason? Or is there anything that the, the, the sort of the broader stock market's missed? And um, is there any sort of value to be had? Because we've already seen so many stocks go up uh, investors are now looking at the next thing. So um, we've seen sort of some hints of value investing coming back into fashion, albeit it's only on a very short period. So I, I had a look at, if you look at some of the bigger companies in the London market, things like Sainsbury's is quite remarkably hasn't bounced back, which I think some people might be surprised about because obviously... We're, Supermarkets we're have been the real good story of, of lockdown, haven't they? They've been the stocks that have done pretty well. Yeah, I mean, you know, we certainly we're all shopping there. Um, they've seen an increase in sales. Um, unfortunately, they have seen an increase in costs, but that's probably the same for quite a lot of sectors as well. So, yes, yeah, so Sainsbury's is, is sort of lagging a bit. Rolls Royce is having a bit of problems. I think people are worried about um, if they're going to be a lot fewer planes in the sky for the sort of foreseeable future. What does that mean for all of Rolls Royce's aftermarket sort of servicing? on its big airplane engines. Um, now, you've had the banks like HSBC and Lloyds. They have certainly not bounced back along with the rest of the market. And there, I think it's people are worried about a very low interest rate world, that they're just not going to be making much money on things. And also, if banks are sort of having to help support um, customers through the hard times, you know, is there going to be a potentially an increase in bad debts coming down the line as well? So it's been, if you've invested in these banks, it's been a very horrible place to be, um, particularly also if you've had dividend cuts as well there. Um, so amongst the sort of the smaller companies, I was very surprised to see Biffa on the list of companies that hasn't rebounded. 
I think a lot of people would view that company as completely defensive. We've all got to get our rubbish taken away and um, our more so than sorted. ever if we're all at home during lockdown. Yeah, but I think with I think with Biffa, the the issue must be do linked with its commercial waste. So as well as collecting sort of the rubbish from you and I in our households, it goes around picking up waste created by businesses. So if we've had loads of businesses not being operating at full capacity or, or if not at all for sort of three or four months, that would mean a considerable reduction in the amount of waste that Biffa's got to be there to pick up. But um, yeah, I was quite surprised, particularly lots of investors seem to be sort of drifting towards more environmental um, themed investments, uh, sort of the flavour of the month or flavour of the year, I should say. Uh, Biff has been left behind. So yeah, and and then just finally, one one the other one sort of um, also sort of perhaps took me by a bit of surprise was Dignity. Um, the funeral company is not bounced back. Um, you know, from a slightly morbid perspective, you, you, unfortunately, we might be seeing more deaths in the country because of coronavirus. But um, you would have thought that they would have you know seen an increase in, in the, the amount of funerals that they have to um, arrange. But um, you know, the stock market doesn't seem to have a lot of faith in that business at the moment. Dignity's results are always so interesting to read because they they talk about deaths in such a matter-of-fact business sense. So they'll, I remember one year they had lower uh, revenues and it was because the flu season hadn't been so bad, so a.k.a fewer people had died of the flu they're always such weird results to read but yeah you oh, would imagine the logic would be the current situation means that they would be making more money yeah i mean it's sort of, i remember reading like pets at home a few years ago was saying um its earnings weren't as good as people expected because there have been um fewer fleas <laughs> the weather wasn't <laughs> the weather wasn't good enough for for fleas so people have been buying you know less treatment for their pet you know the cats and dogs and stuff yeah so it's amazing what sort of things that companies do comment on that um to you and i would like your eyes sort of your eyebrows would lift slightly but um you know that's how you sort of attribute what's going on with the with the world so <laughs> and the obviously the big news this week is that people across the country can now go out to pubs and hotels and other parts of the leisure sector from the 4th of July. So presumably that's had a good impact on certain stocks in the market that are going to benefit. Yeah, so 4th of July is the magic day. So for Independence Day, the headlines write themselves, (laughs) don't they? Yes, yeah. Um, In in the pub day, I'm sure someone will have some sort of a pun they managed to get. Hopefully it'll be a better pun than that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think one, you know, I was... I've been watching the stock market reactions um, every day that we get a bit of news from Boris uh, or, or someone else in government. And just thinking, it's a, I'm a bit surprised for reaction. So we kind of had a very strong feeling that things like cinemas and pubs were going to be reopening. Um, you know, the arguably the stock market's meant to be pricing in what it thinks is going to happen in the future. So, but strangely, you know, on the day that it gets announced that all these uh, leisure companies can reopen, all these stocks are just rallying. And they're thinking, why on earth haven't they already priced this in already? So, um, but yes, I mean, I, I, I've taken a step back and had a look at how these stocks have performed so far this year. And it's not very, it's not very nice at all, especially if you've been invested in literally any part of the leisure sector here um, has been 
truly horrible. So whilst you've seen stocks bounce in recent days, uh, year to date is still not very nice. Of course, you do have to think they've had effectively four months of being shut. Um, although I must say, I cycled past a real Greek restaurant the other day and outside they had a little table with, uh, and they were surfing draft beer. Um, loads of people sitting down having meals outside on the tables um, and people standing there drinking in the streets. So maybe pubs have actually been functioning or, or, or sort of... I uh, think some have. <laughs> I, went, I was in central London the other day and there were pubs operating, but from a kind of hatch in the doorway and then you stood outside and drank your pint, which is basically what everyone does in the summer anyway. So, um, yeah, I think some have managed to open, but obviously lots haven't and some of the big chains haven't have they maybe no, it's more so, of the independent ones that have managed to open yeah so so, so they're gonna so whether it's four months of no earnings or four months of very little earnings um that thing obviously the, the, the outlook for their businesses near term is pretty bad so hence why share prices have collapsed um the concern is will we all rush back to these places and feel comfortable and spend as we used to do um, I think that the stock market is pricing in still a very tough time. So if, if we start off with the pubs, um, if you just think about it, they've got to do loads of social distancing. So they can't have as many um, tables being used, say, for meals and stuff like that. Um, they're going to have to do lots of extra costs, um, you know, things like cleaning toilets constantly. Um, they'll put screens up in all the bars. They'll need loads of technology because we're now being asked to order our pint via an app on our phone now you know a lot of a lot of places don't have that I mean, weatherspoons is, you know, has a very um, successful and has been used very well app for for quite a while but i know a couple of, i remember a couple of years ago fuller's did a test and sort of i remember talking to them and they said there wasn't a big take up of it but so the technology is there for for pubs to use apps i don't think um they will sort of struggle to be able to install a system but um if you think about it you now got to have everything delivered to your table that's going to be more waiting staff costs um and i just think and the what thing is most of these staff costs have been reduced to zero because staff have been furloughed or to near zero um so pubs are going to have to bring these staff out of furlough and start paying them again whilst also like you say, probably having much reduced revenues on what they would have had before coronavirus because they're so much more limited in terms of customer numbers and also their costs have gone up. Yeah, so I, I think there's going to be a bit of a divide between those with a beer garden will probably do well, certainly when it's very nice sunny weather. Um, mm. But, you know, the really small pubs, the local ones, where, you know, it might only have, say, sort of four or five tables and everyone normally congregates around the bar they're going to struggle because you're not allowed to stand at the bar anymore. Um, so I think it's it, it's going to be pretty tough. It, I mean, obviously, it depends on people wanting, feeling confident enough to want to go back into sort of a, a social environment. So I think you'll get people sort of ha just have a look maybe in the first couple of weeks to see what it's like. Um, and if they're not comfortable with sort of safety measures, and um, then it could be... It could be a tough time for, for what is normally, you know, the, the summer is normally the big boom time for, for pubs. I mean, as we're recording that this at the moment, this week's weather forecast is is, is outstanding. Um, in a normal time, the pubs will be uh, 
you know, the tails would be ringing all day long like this. So that, you know, I think I'm sure they're going to be optimistic because they want they're happy to be back at work and stuff. But it does depend on consumer uh, confidence to be able to go get back through the door whilst we all you know yes we all like a pint and a pie but um there's a difference between that and feeling safe isn't it although one friend was telling me that um so she lives a bit more rural area and there's a pub that's got a large beer garden she said that they started taking bookings you had to book a table in advance you couldn't just rock up um and it was booked all the way through until the end of the summer already oh oh that's really interesting so it yeah. might be that you see pockets where there are, are kind of good pub beer gardens and, and people pounce on it. Um, it might be that actually a table at the pub in the beer garden becomes the hottest ticket of the summer. Wow, <laughs> that's good. I mean, I, I, um, I booked up for a couple of days camping last night and the lady on the phone was saying to me that she's got 500 bookings to process um, oh wow yeah and so it was like clearly you know we're here for a, a summer of staycations rather than jetting off to exactly um, you know two weeks on the beach so so i guess you know if, if we're all staying at home but still want to get away from the ho- you know, get out of the house somehow to get you know, a different environment um then you know the pub is the natural place to go and try and get uh, some you know a bite to eat so you know, I don't know. Yeah, so we'll see. So at the moment, from a stock market perspective, you've had the companies with the strongest balance sheets, and the ones deemed to have um, perhaps the best beer gardens and stuff, like Fuller's and Young's. Their shares are down about 20% this year. So Weatherspoons, I would argue, has got bigger pubs, probably better to serve to deal with sort of social distancing stuff, um, and already got the technology. So its shares are down 36%, so it's r- roughly in the middle. And then the worst off are people like Marston's, We'll have lots of small pubs regionally, um, Mitchells and Butlers, which because they're a mixture of pubs and restaurants, so um, places that they own harvester and, and things like that. So I guess it's are people going to be feeling comfortable to go out to eat um, again? You know, that's that's. And I think it's also going to be interesting to see which which um, premises reopen. So pubs may particularly some of those big chains may decide just not to open quite a few of their pubs if they think that they're just too small to be able to do social distancing effectively and get enough people through the door to be able to pay their costs so i think it'll be interesting to see what proportion of these pubs and restaurants and places actually do reopen yeah so if we look at hotels um I'd argue they're probably easier to social distance because you, know, you could you could plonk someone's meal outside their room and they could eat that inside their room. Um, you know, if they're going to be there for a couple of days, they don't really need to be. People don't need to be cleaning that room constantly, like you know, a, a pub might need cleaning throughout the day. Um, but here you've had the same sort of thing. Whitbread's got the shares are down nearly forty six percent, and that's partially down because it raised uh, a very large amount of money through a rights issue of you know deeply discounted share price. Um, so intercontinental hotels, which is a bit more um, of an international business, that's down 30%. Um, and then the Park Plaza and a PPHE is down 40 So, So, uh, yeah, I guess with the issue with hotels is, yes, you might get um, a boost from staycations short term, but what about all the business travel and travel from, you know, stays from overseas tourists? That's all going to be affected, isn't it? So short term, market is thinking, um, they're going to go through a very difficult period. but um, Yeah, yeah and I think, again, it probably comes down to that issue of what your market is as a hotel and, and whether you're 
appealing to people weekending or whether you're appealing predominantly to business travellers, which you're right, there's just going to be such a drop-off in terms of the numbers even once some travel restrictions are lifted. Yeah. So on, on, on as to cinemas, they're reopening as well. Um, Cineworld is the the worst performer here, down 66%, because that's because it's absolutely drowning in debt. So people are very worried about its ability to stay uh, alive as a business and then keep servicing those debt repayments. Um, but cinema is an interesting one. If you're happy to be in sort of this confined space with other people, um, the idea that there's no one sitting next to you, no one sitting in front of you or behind you, it's, it's not bad, is it? Um, I'm sure to some people will be very excited, not going to be their, their seat kicked all the time throughout the film. But it depends if you then have to pay four times as much to compensate for the fact that there's so many fewer people in the cinema. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I'd be willing to pay to go and see a film, particularly considering I feel like I spent a large proportion of lockdown sitting watching films. It's probably not <laughs> the main thing that I want to go out and do right now. Uh, also, you won't be able to get any pick and mix when you go there either. Oh, so well, then I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but you know, contrast to to Cineworld, Everyman Media is the other um, sort of quoted cinema company on the UK market, and that their shares are down just under thirty percent. So, um, kind of in line with uh, yeah, the rest of the tr- the leisure sector. Um, bowling, unfortunately, that's not coming back, and that surprises me. Well, not not back on the fourth of July anyway. Surely, ten pin bowling, you're already two meters away or more from the next person on the lane. Um, and it's got, you know, it's got a natural social distance environment that each, you know, each person, each group of people um, is in, in, in a, stays in the same place um, for what, you know, for up to an hour, isn't it? So I'm very surprised that that hasn't come back. There's um, quite a few oddities, I think, to the list of things that are opening and aren't opening. So, for example, um, hairdressers are reopening, but beauty salons and nail places aren't reopening. And there does seem to be some weird things around yet and like cinemas reopening but bowling isn't is it is it an issue with cleaning the balls maybe that's it with bowling i don't know but that's all you have to do isn't it you have to just that that can't be that hard and Uh, sharing shoes well no because no these days if you talk to people at hollywood bowl all their lanes are now got sort of scratch proof surfaces. You don't need to change your shoes. That uh, shows how long it's been since <laughs> I've been bowling. <laughs> you're, you're living in the olden days, Laura. This is this is the modern Always. world. <laughs> um, yeah, you don't. Know. I think it's because Boris simply doesn't like bowling. He must. He basically likes a pint and um, obviously likes going to the cinema. But poor old and bowling needs his and hair cutting. Yeah, yeah. But he, you know, <laughs> I I want to go swimming, but there's no chance of that at the moment. So clearly. Maybe he just doesn't like a, a And I want to get a manicure, but clearly that's not a priority for Boris. <laughs> okay, I think we need, to, we need to write to our local MP and complain. Yeah. <laughs> Campaign for swimming and manicures. <laughs> so, yes, I mean, it's, 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 so, so just, it's an interesting place to watch as an investor. Um, what will be the big share price catalysts from 4th of July onwards will be the first hint that we can get a sense of how is trading holding up um, and broken down per sector. So I imagine there could be some interesting movements up and down because there's always going to be expectations will be probably quite high from some people. Clearly, the market's um, 
not overly excited given how the share prices are still trading very much down on the year. But um, but yeah, what d- d- I would say this is the, the the sector to watch for the next couple of weeks just to see. And I think it'll also, what we'll probably see is a bit of pent-up demand, a bit like the, the housing market, which we're going to talk about, but we'll see some pent-up demand and a flurry of people going to the pub, and then we might see a bit of a tailing off after a couple of weeks after the novelty dies down, or maybe people get a bit more wary about social distancing or have an experience at going to a pub and a restaurant and didn't feel entirely safe. Or So I think it's probably a case of, it will tell the the figures and the data will tell one story initially, but then maybe a month down the line, it might tell something different. Yeah. So let's talk about the property market. It's been a bit of a basket case in the crisis. And we've talked a bit about it before, the kind of shutdowns, um, the restrictions, what you have to do now if you're actually selling a property and um, buying a home. But the latest news is now that people are struggling to get a mortgage, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've had some bits of new news about the property market in recent days. So Rightmove, which is the property portal that people, um, you know, state agents use to advertise their sort of the clients' properties. And if you're looking to buy a home, that's a natural place to go and see what's available. Um, so they've had a surge in inquiries about property on the coast, <laughs> which I thought was quite nice. I think we all dream to go and live by the seaside. Definitely. Um, yeah. And it was saying it's had... It's its platform has been really, really busy since mid-May. Um, it's saying new property listings are returning to the market. Um, also, it's got a tool on its website which, which can be used to help value a property for mortgage purposes. So um, it said that usage is, is rapidly returning to normal. So from that basis, you think, OK, this sounds like the property market is bouncing back. However, there's a bit of research out from Butterfield Mortgages who who talked to about 1,300 home buyers uh, to find out how um, they've been affected. So this is what they found is half of prospective home buyers have been denied a mortgage despite already having an agreement in principle. So that's does that suggest that banks are becoming very cautious about to whom they lend and, and sort of looking at people's circumstances, have they changed since lockdown, etc. Um, you know, looking at their employment prospects and, and employment current situation. I think we're seeing this in the um, first-time buyer market particularly as well. So we had some stuff out from Nationwide this week talking about how it's um, increasing the minimum deposit that it requires from first-time buyers. So before you could get a 95% mortgage, which meant you only needed a 5% deposit. Now they've made a, a requirement that um, as a minimum, you need a 15% deposit. So that makes it quite tough for quite a lot of first-time buyers. And Nationwide is obviously a big lender in this market. Yeah. Right. So Butterfield also said that 39% of home buyers have pulled out of buying a property because of coronavirus, despite having put in an offer before. Um, so maybe, again, it could be to do with their change in their circumstances or or they just feel now is not the time to make this big commitment um perhaps they're worrying about the the security of their jobs there's nothing worse than you know you you buy a house and then uh, something happens to your job Uh, you can start worrying about can you keep up those mortgage repayments sooner after you just bought something or you're worrying about valuations i think if i'd put in an offer before lockdown I don't know how much certainty I would have around the property still being worth that amount now or 
in a couple of months time when you actually complete on it so I think there is some nervousness there but there's no no one ever knows what's going to happen with house prices even though so many people spend so much of their time predicting it but um I was looking at some figures this week at Zoopla says that it thinks there's going to be a rise a house price rise of two percent over the next three months but then at the same time in the same week um Savills and Knight Frank which were which are big estate agents, obviously, um, predicted that house prices are going to fall by 7% this year. So I think there is also a lot of nervousness around getting a grip of how much a property is actually worth. Yeah, I I still think there's a surge in people doing up their home, deciding they don't want to move. They're just going to stay put. Judging by the number of, you know, the amount of construction noise that's coming from my road... During lockdowns, unbelievable. Everyone's having stuff done to their house. You know, the, the traffic is supermarket vans and tradesmen. That's and it's it's that it's sounds all... a lot like my area skip deliveries <laughs> <Yeah>. and <laughs> supermarkets. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess I guess lockdown has tested people as to whether they've got enough space in their house, whether they want to make improvements. Um, I have to say, as someone who's partway through building work, I would definitely not choose lockdown as a period to start doing renovation work on my house. It feels like the worst time to start doing oh, it, no. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Well, you're going to get, what, are, you, are you concerned about the ability to get all the, um, the materials? and? Uh, I'm more concerned about are... my neighbours absolutely hating me by the end of this <laughs> process because everyone's at home now and I'm making lots of noise. Yeah. Oh, well. I'll have to move out at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it is a difficult market at the moment. And I think lenders are just generally a bit concerned that kind of nationwide um, thing of, of them increasing the, the deposit that you need. I think it's just a sign that lenders are a bit nervous about valuations and they don't want people to end up going into um, negative equity, which is where obviously where the house is worth less than the borrowing that you've got out on it. Um, so I think there is just a bit of nervousness around what direction the, mortgage, the, the housing market's headed in. So I recently caught up with Ian Mortimer from Guinness Asset Management, and he runs the Guinness Global Equity Income Fund. Um, so I wanted to talk to him about dividend cuts and the environment for income investors. But I started by asking him how the Global Equity Income Fund had coped in the current crisis, but also what he's been buying and selling at the moment. Yeah, generally speaking, we've been very pleased um, in terms of how we run the fund. Um, you know, we are not uh, running it as a high dividend yield product. Um, you know, we've always really focused on uh, the dividend growth aspect. Um, so really, we're and we're trying to achieve that through, you know, buying what we describe as quality companies, so kind of high returns on capital, and most importantly, uh, in the current uh, environment, um, strong balance sheets. Um, and I think it's that that uh, latter point that's been um, really beneficial um, uh, during the sell-off. So actually, during the sell-off, our sort of you know the quality characteristics, strong balance sheet characteristics, um, helps the fund uh, actually outperform relative to benchmark during the sort of market sell-off. Um, but then uh, in the subsequent rally we've seen, um, you know, we have had a, a balance between. Um, not just sort of defensive companies like the healthcare's and the, the consumer staples that we own, um, but also we own some sort of what we describe as kind of quality industrials. Um, so businesses like Illinois Toolworks and um, 
companies such as as that, uh, and they've actually you know ha- held up quite well and actually captured some of that recovery because they're often best placed to potentially do well kind of coming out the other side. Um, but from an income perspective, um, we've also been very pleased. Um, you know, headlines have been pretty negative for um, dividend and dividend cuts, you know, particularly from a UK perspective. It's sort of 40, 50% expected cuts to the kind of the FTSE um, benchmark yield, if you like. Um, and actually, we've managed to avoid pretty much all of that. Um, so as of today, um, in the portfolio, we've only had one company that's reduced their dividend. Uh, mm-hmm. That was Imperial Brands, where they rebased the dividend by a third. Um, but actually, for the rest of our portfolio, the other 34 companies, they've maintained their dividend we think we've had about 18 companies out of the 35 have actually grown it, um, which has also been really pleasing. Um, and there's still a little bit of uncertainty going into the back end of the year. Um, we own companies like BAE and Diageo, where uh, their dividends are you know, somewhat questionable um, at the moment, and we're looking into that quite closely. Uh, but generally speaking, from a dividend perspective, we've been very, very pleased. Um, and again, I think it's those quality and balance sheet strength characteristics that, that have really helped with it. And so with that, I mean, obviously, that's, uh, I would guess, fairly unusual among your peer group to have only seen one of your holdings um, cut or defer their dividend. So um, how how did you manage that? Was that just luck or did you foresee some warning signs early on that meant that you sold out of some of those ones that have subsequently cut? How did you get to that point? Yes, I think broadly, it was, I say, the sort of the way we run the portfolio um, is that we're trying to... Um, create a sort of or buy robust businesses that can do well regardless of what the economic environment is. Clearly what's happened recently has been um, pretty different. You know, this kind of very sharp sort of economic sudden stop um, has been you know, pretty um, uh, substantial uh, and has hit some areas particularly hard. So kind of a, a big reason why um, you know, we've maybe avoided some of the worst of the dividend cuts is some of the areas that we typically don't invest in. So highly cyclical businesses um, we generally don't own because they don't have this sort of long history of sort of high return on capital. Um, so you know, we didn't own anything in sort of the mining um, sector, for example, commodities, um, you know, things like airlines, we didn't own any of those. Um, and then on the other side, the kind of very regulated side of things um, has meant that you know, we generally don't own those types of businesses. So we don't own a bank, for example. So we own lots of financials, but we don't own any banks. And that's been an area that's been hit really hard from a sort of regulatory perspective, telling them to cut their dividends. Um, also, I think we acted relatively quickly. Um, so, you know, when we're coming into this crisis and sort of uh, and seeing it move from China coming across into kind of Western Europe, we, uh, and this is sort of Feb- mid-February time, late February, you know, we were looking at the portfolio pretty closely and thinking about, you know, if, you know, how will this, you know, different economic environment affect any of the companies we currently own? Uh, and we took the view um, that there were some that we, you know, we were worried about, um, not only from a kind of returns perspective, but also from their um, dividend safety. So near in, so at the end of February, we sold um, our positions uh, in WPP, so the kind of the global advertising business um, mm-hmm. sold a position in Royal Dutch Shell, um, which we owned. That was our only energy company. Again, sort of thinking from Royal Dutch Shell, you know, clearly demand drop in the oil price. Uh, sorry, excuse me, demand uh, for oil dropping would have an effect on the oil price. Uh, and we've seen, you know, known that you know, the Shell dividend had been you know, questionable in the past, 
um, but they'd had sort of, we felt, more levers to pull on uh, in terms of you know, reducing CapEx, selling off some assets, uh, but maybe they didn't have quite so many levers um, today. Uh, for WPP, again, it was a sort of a company that you could argue was you know, somewhat of, uh, you know, un- well, definitely unloved, um, going through some change, the CEO was leaving, um, but actually after their uh, results we saw, which were pretty poor, um, we felt pretty uncertain the management team was kind of across this and some of the things they were doing to improve the business were actually going to be pushed out quite far uh, and what was happening with coronavirus was actually just going to exacerbate their problems. Um, so we sold both of those companies and subsequently we then saw um, you know, WPP cancel their entire dividend um, obviously, we all know, you know Royal Dutch Shell cut their dividend by you know, 65%. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were two companies we owned that we sold um, that then subsequently cut their dividend and, and thus we um, um, uh, managed to avoid those. A third company we sold was um, Randstad, um, so the Dutch-listed um, uh, global recruitment business. And you know, again, similar sorts of thought processes that Recruitment clearly going to be under pressure. Uh, they are also uh, quite heavily exposed to more shorter term recruitment and particularly kind of the automotive sector. So we just felt that you know, that, that wasn't going to be a good place to be in general and that, again, their, their dividend could be under pressure. And that was another one that subsequently um, went out and actually just cut their entire dividend for the year. And so do you think now when you're hunting for, for dividends and income investors are hunting for those income payers, that they might end up looking in areas that previously haven't been seen as kind of good dividend payout um, sectors or companies in the past? Yeah, I think that's definitely right. I think that's something that you know we, we have been trying to do um, and hopefully have been doing successfully um, since we launched the fund back in 2010. So one of the reasons... Um, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, we're not trying to achieve the highest dividend yield possible. And when we launched the fund, you know, we specifically had that aim to be more sort of moderate dividend yield, but focusing on dividend growth, because that gave us the opportunity to move into and have access to companies in some of those sort of, as you say, sectors that aren't necessarily kind of classically um, associated with income. So we've done really well out of having exposure to things like the IT sector, for example. Um, when we launched, we bought Microsoft. Um, that's probably been our sort of best performing stock. We know we still own it. You know, and that was a sort of cash cow, good dividend, but it maybe it wasn't so high, but it was growing quite nicely. Other companies like Cisco, we bought that back in 2012. Um, you know, that's a company that actually only initiated their dividend in 2011. Dividend was fairly modest. It was probably two and a half to three percent, um, but they were growing their dividend at sort of 20 to 30 percent per year. Um, you know, and, and those are the sorts of companies and, and areas that, that, that have been you know, really good because they give you not only the balance between you know, what we think is a, you know, a pretty decent dividend, um, the kicker is the dividend growth, which obviously you know, protects you in sort of real terms, but you can also get some capital growth from these, these types of areas too. Um, and I think that's been a, you know, a really positive thing in terms of that mix of your total return, not just purely kind of banking on the, the income, um, but thinking actually you can find this good business that's growing and can reinvest, its asset base will grow and then you'll get this nice sustainable dividend kind of as a consequence of that. And, and that sort of um, uh, opportunity we felt that um, is, is really positive and it's something that you know, definitely looks positive today in light of some of those um, you know, high yield sectors doing pretty poorly on, on, on multiple fronts. And, and previously, um, 
yield data was so important to, to income investors in terms of kind of assessing um, how much a company was paying out and what their future prospects were like. But I guess the current environment and with such large scale dividend cuts across companies, that data now becomes um, a bit out of date and a bit unreliable. So how do you navigate that? Well, it's a good point. I mean, I think if you're, you know, the, the, the big risk really is, you know, letting the kind of the um, income tail wag the investment dog, I suppose, um, to coin a phrase that you know, we're trying to look at it as a sort of a whole. So you want to get ultimately a good total return. Um, and part of that will come through that, um, that, that good business. But the consequence of that will be it's also paying a dividend. So when we're kind of thinking about it, you know, that again, you sort of say, you know, your argument was they're big, these significant dividend cuts, you know, they're massive. They're pretty concentrated in, in certain areas. Um, you know, if you look in sort of a regional basis, UK, you know, Europe getting hit really hard, US much less so. Um, you know, why is that? Um, you've got certain concentrations, particularly in the UK, in the sort of, as I say, the banking sector, the commodity sector. Um, you know, things like similar in, in Europe, particularly the banking sector, that's really driving down. Not only were they a big part of the index, but they're probably even a bigger part of the, of the, the overall income, because these companies make up a big part of the index, but also pay high dividends. And so that's why the headline yields have been hit so, so hard. US maybe less so, because, um, you know, again, they have a sort of, the, the US regulators have not sort of forced banks to cut their dividends yet. Um, that's sort of up for debate. Um, they've got you know, higher exposure, as I said, to areas such as IT that are doing quite well and, and maybe healthcare for, as well, for example, which again is doing pretty good. Um, and so, you know, the, there are you know, pockets where you can see um, you know, these sustainable dividends coming through. The other thing I would say as well is that when we're looking at you know, which areas are kind of most likely to kind of maintain or defend their dividend, Aside from the fact of which sectors you're looking at, you can then start to think about other other things. So, which are areas where you know demand is likely to remain robust? So, kind of businesses that you know your consumer staple type, you know, Nestle's of this world, um, of you know, are likely to you know not see such such significant hits to their revenues and earnings. So, therefore, their dividends should be safer. Similarly, you know, some of the healthcare businesses. Clearly, that's you know, a couple of reasons why they've done so well through this crisis. Um, but there's also other areas, so, you know, some industrials actually, Otis um, that makes lifts and elevators. You know, a significant portion of their revenues is, is from service revenue, so kind of contract recurring uh, revenue. So therefore, even though they're in a more cyclical sector, um, because of their particular business model, um, you know, their revenues are actually much more robust. Companies where, you know, balance sheets are very, very strong, you know, that means, you know, even if they are going to get into some trouble, um, you know, it, it's likely that they have a lot of resources to pull on that they can kind of keep paying their, you know, keep their capital allocation policy um, going, which will include the dividend, um, regardless if they're, you know, taking a hit. Things like Johnson & Johnson, you know, yes, it's in the healthcare sector, so it's doing fine and actually pretty well anyway. You know, they've got like a AAA credit rating. So if you start to look through... Um, things like that, you can start to see areas that these companies can do really well. If you look at our portfolio, I think 71% of our portfolio is rated A better. Our benchmark MSCI world, um, that equivalent ratio is about 20, 21%, so much lower. Mm -hmm. um, and then the final thing might be that's a little bit more esoteric, I suppose, um, is that there's companies which have pretty significant family or uh, founder shareholdership. 
Um, and actually, some of these companies, uh, because of that uh, fact, hold their dividend in you know, very high regard because either mm. the founding family really wants to see that dividend. Um, and so there's good examples of companies that you know, might, in normal circumstances, have their dividend. But because of that uh, significant shareholdership, uh, I've actually continued to pay it. So being a company called VF, so they make things like Vans trainers and North Face uh, jackets. Um, you know, consumer discretionary stock, clearly they've been hit really hard because shops have shut and there are not consumers out buying. They've got you know, online, uh, it's doing pretty well, but but still they've been hit pretty hard. But they've got a kind of 10% um, sort of founder uh, shareholdership and, and they've maintained their dividend. Which, uh, one of the reasons they've stated for that is, is for that reason. So there's other ways of, of finding um, companies that can pay their dividends as well as some of the other um, things I've just discussed. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I um, saw somewhere, I, I think you were being um, interviewed elsewhere or in your kind of um, commentary to investors and you were talking about the fact that some of the companies that are paying dividends now are likely going to be doing so out of last year's profits. Um, so do you think that means we haven't maybe seen the full extent of some of these cuts or some of these hits to income and there, there could be more to come next year or do you think that that's too um i don't know too extreme no it's a very good point and it's something you know, we're, we're actively looking at because you're dead right that you know we we, we were talking about that that you know, particularly in europe um you know a lot of um you know european companies pay their dividend in a one so they just pay it a single payment uh, and that's typically in the kind of um end of q1 um from a calendar year perspective so around sort of that March, April time. And what that is, is as you rightly say, that is a payment made out of the profits they uh, created in uh, the previous year. Um, so there's definitely companies um, that have done that. Um, maybe they paid it more early on, so we haven't really seen you know, the full impact. Um, they may have you know, had it already established and declared in their AGM, and therefore it sort of went through and got voted on. Um, and clearly of those companies, what's companies earnings going to look like in uh, 2020? A lot of companies that's going to be significantly lower so therefore you roll into to, you know march april 2021 um what are these companies going to do because even though a lot of companies have a kind of uh, a state of progressive dividend policy so that means we will uh, aim to essentially grow our dividend um you know year on year underlying those uh, progressive policies is a an approach that is often pay up ratio based will be around you know 50% of earnings or you know, X percent of you know, free cash flow uh, will be our guide. And but by having a progressive policy, we can kind of, you know, within the bounds, we'll try and you know, we're quite happy to have a pay up you know, 60% some years if earnings are a bit less, or you know, it'd be 45% the previous year, if you know, whatever it might look like. But broadly, that's what we're targeting. Clearly, if earnings get, you know, for companies are you know, down a third or 25% or whatever, then then clearly that payout ratio can really spike up. So Yes, I think there's definitely going to be um, uh, more companies under pressure to think about that, that dividend they're going to be paying in, in 2021 in relation to 2020 earnings. Um, and I think it, a lot will come down to the confidence of that company um, thinking about what 2021 is going to look like, how long does the lockdowns last, what impact have that had and how lasting does that look, what, what are they seeing in terms of their data for, for behaviour going forward. Um, and also things like how much cash they've got on hand, because you know, if, if companies, I think companies recognise that you know, paying dividends is important, that 
you know, cutting dividends can be an indicator that you know, things aren't going so well for them. Um, but, you know, I think there will be companies that maybe keep their dividend flat, but may have to dip into, um, you know, cash piles or, or increased debt levels if that's uh, within reason. Um, and I think that will definitely come down to, again, as I say, the kind of confidence in, in what the economic environment will be. I guess the flip side to that will be there's maybe some companies who uh, have maybe reduced um, their payouts that maybe will kind of increase that. Um, I think, as I said earlier, you know, think certain sectors like the banking sector or you know, commodity companies, you know, if commodity prices you know, bounce back very strongly, they, they may be more in a position to, to pay their dividends next year. And that may offset some of these things we just discussed earlier um, on a kind of an index level. But, but I think broadly, yeah, we, we would definitely be concerned about what 2021 looks like. Thank you so much for explaining all of that and, and talking us through it. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. So that's all from us this week. So over the coming weeks, we'll be talking to experts about shareholder activism and finding opportunities among small cap stocks. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast and you don't miss any of these new episodes. So it would be great if you could leave us a review of wherever you listen to the podcast as it helps other people find us. We'll see you next week. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.